it's sometimes hard to start a sermon in the midst of uh, what's happening right now in our culture and in our nation. It, it just seems that my words will always fall short of correctly describing how I'm feeling. And sometimes even words that I write earlier in the week just seem so pointless because of what is happening right now. And I know that as a pastor, I'm kind of expected to, to kind of have an opinion or have a stance on things. And it's really, really difficult, the situation. One of the things that has been um, resounding through my head is the words of Martin Luther King Jr., where he says, and I'm sure you've seen the Facebook Pinterest quote, that a riot is the language of the unheard. And there has been a group of people in our nation who have been marginalized and who have been unheard for such a long time that violence was happening to their community by those who were called to protect it and nobody was speaking up for them. And perhaps the clanging symbol of rioting is the best way for people to hear the deep pain that is underneath. And it's that reminder to me that we live in such a fallen world where the marginalized feel like their only voice is violence. I pray that we can be a people who can search for the marginalized and amplify their voices, be their voices for them if we're in a place of power so we don't have to continually hit these bubbling points because that is not the way God intended life to be. But I also want to stress that there is no building, no merchandise that is more important than a body, the image of God. I pray that we as people remember that, that we are the image of God and bearers of God's image to one and another. Let us really look to stand up, to stand up for those who may feel like a building is more important than they are, or a power or principality is more important than they are, and stand up for them. I'm going to say a quick prayer and then I'm going to move into my sermon. Heavenly Father, I come to you with a broken heart because I sometimes do not know what to do and I feel like my inaction uh, my inaction is speaking volumes that I don't wish for it to speak. But it's more that I come paralyzed because the system is so big. And yet, Lord, last week we even preached about what to do in the face of these things is to have forgiveness. So, Lord, I do pray for forgiveness. Forgiveness for uh, both sides of this argument, but also, Lord, we do not forget, but we use this forgiveness as an opportunity to change. That your love is a love that breaks the systems. Your love is a love that dries up the root. So I ask that your love dries up the root of systematic oppression that is happening inside of our society. That your love is a love that breaks through these barriers of violence. To remind ourselves, Lord, to remind ourselves of who we are and whose we are, that we belong with you. I pray for protection of those who are protesting. I pray protection uh, and wisdom for those who are leading um, uh, or protecting against the protest, the police, the cities, National Guard, that we are able to see one another in a way of love, and that we're able to drop hate and anger and let your truth resound. I pray these things in your son's heavenly name. Amen. When speaking in parables, it's important to note 
to not be so obvious sometimes. But I, I guess sometimes you have to be as close, as literal as possible so that people can understand. I say that this week because Jesus is going to really let some people have it. So we start in probably one of the most literal parables from Jesus's lips, where he tells a story of the vineyard, where the owner sets up a vineyard and he rents it out to some farmers. And lo and behold, they mistreat the land and those who come to and come to resent the original owner. And they take the owner's decrees, which are brought to them by other people, and they beat them up. They, they, they disregard them. And eventually they do it to the owner's own son when the owner sends the son. I wanted to offer some context because when Jesus is actually telling this parable, he's actually shouting back to Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Let me sing for my loved one a love song for his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it. He cleared away its stones. He planted it with excellent vines. He built a tower inside of it and dug out a wine vat in it. He expected it to grow good grapes, but it grew rotten grapes. So now you who live in Jerusalem, you people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I haven't done for it? When I expected it to grow good grapes, why did it grow rotten grapes? Now let me tell you what I'm doing to my vineyard. I'm removing its hedge so it will be destroyed. I'm breaking down its wall so it will be trampled. It will turn it into a ruin. It won't be pruned or hoed and the thorns and thistles will grow up. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord of heavenly forces is, is, is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are the plantings in which God delighted. God expected justice, but there was bloodshed. Righteousness, but there were cries of distress. Hmm. You know, it's one of these divine appointments that I wrote this sermon way before the George Floyd things, and now I'm just coming across what I wrote and hearing that scripture, God expected justice, but there was bloodshed. Righteousness, but there was a cry of distress. So you can see in these scriptures that Jesus is referencing directly a prophecy from Isaiah when he is talking about this parable that he's giving to the people. The prophet of Isaiah is telling Israel that God has been disappointed in how they've been acting with the rules that God has given them and how they've interpreted them. And God now will use that opportunity to bring justice to Israel. God warns of a judgment coming to Israel. And this usually pushes Israel to have some kind of repentance and, and change its ways. But once again, that line, God expected justice, but there was bloodshed, righteousness, but there was, call, there was a cry of distress. Jesus is trying to connect a past failure with a present failure. And trying to bring it to their perspective so that so that they can also then understand the punchline of the cornerstone, which you find in Psalm 118, 21 through 24. I thank you because you answered me, because you were my saving help. The stone rejected by the builders is now the main foundation stone. This has happened because of the Lord. It is astounding in our sight. This is the day the Lord acted. We will rejoice and celebrate in it. See, this is the other side of the calls 
of the cry of distress or the bloodshed that was found. These are the people that bloodshed was happening onto, that the cries of distress were coming from. And Jesus is connecting it saying, these people now will say, I thank you because you answered me, Lord. Because you were my saving help. The stone that was rejected by the builders is now the main foundation stone. This has happened because of the Lord. It is astounding in our sight. This is the day the Lord acted. We will rejoice and celebrate in it. Hmm. Jesus is connecting prophecies for those gathered to show that he is the son of God, the son of the vineyard owner, and those who are in power have rejected him. But that had to happen in order for things to happen as the prophets recorded. Jesus is once again trying to make it clear who he is to the people of Israel and what he came here to do. And the people gathered still don't get it. Even with all of their knowledge and all these small callbacks to the other scriptures that they knew so well, they still can't see the intention of God before them. They still only see partially because of what that he is faced is because of that because they only see partially he is faced them with a stream of questions where people are trying to catch him up get him in trouble or discredit him first are the followers of herod who came who want him dead because of his challenge to the political powers at b and he is trying to catch him in a trap of treason or perhaps inciting insurrection that would have gotten him in trouble with Rome, the captors of Israel. See, we just got out of Jesus talking about this revolutionary idea of wealth, as we heard last week. And they think they got him by trying to say, well, then we shouldn't pay our taxes, right? Because that would then decrease from this wealth that you're calling for us to give up. And this could get him in trouble if he were uh, to admit it with the political state that, that Jerusalem was in. And Jesus, knowing what they're doing, says, you give to Caesar what is Caesar. And this answer is a bit sassy, but it's sass with a purpose. Jesus is looking, Jesus is saying, look at your money and see the idolization that we place on it. When you give it away, you're saying that this does not have power over me. Give back to the idol what bears the face of the idol. Because it is in the end, God will get what is his, and we belong to him. Our treasures are in heaven. This is another act where Jesus is trying to show that money has no power over us. And yet we give power over it, perhaps in that fear of taxes. And Jesus is saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar." To show that he cannot use this way of controlling us. Because that's what the ploy of taxes were. is a way to control people. If you kept control of their resources or fear that you could increase their taxes and thus decrease their resources, you could control them. Fear of the lack of resources was an easy way to control masses by the few. And what Jesus is telling these people is you actually realize that money does not control your happiness. It does not control who you are. Give to Caesar what bears his image because you bear the image of God. The things of this world will fade away as you stare into his lovely face. This is so wondrous to the people gathered because this is both compliant but also subversive. It's compliant to the government forces but subversive in the realization that it has no power over you. 
taking away what it was intended to do. And Jesus says this is the intent of life. It was not to be controlled by the things of this world, but rather to have our mind on heavenly things. And what are those heavenly things? Well, Jesus is about to get into it. But first, he talks of resurrection. The next group is trying to try and test Jesus are these religious scholars asking him about resurrection. Now, when they're saying they didn't believe in resurrection, they're not talking about Christ's resurrection, but rather a part of Jewish theology that spoke of resurrection or what happens in the afterlife. What these scholars have done with the parts of their own theology that they don't like is, well, they try to make up situations that are so outrageous that they don't have to follow their part, those parts of theology. They would give examples that are so outrageous. They would say, well, this is obviously hyperbole. This is not what God intended. This type of straw man argument, where we try to make up these preposterous situations so that we don't have to follow what Jesus is asking us to, definitely doesn't still happen today. Or definitely happens all of the time. So basically, the law around that time was that if a woman, if a husband were to die and a woman was widowed and he had a brother who was unmarried, the brother needed to marry the, new, the wife. Now, this is kind of a weird law, right? So when we encounter weird laws like this, we should really look at it the lens of what the intent of the law was, not just in how it got interpreted. So what would be the intent of this law? Well, marriage definitely had a bit of a different connotation in this time than it does today. Marriage had a stronger sense of property and ownership. And because of that, women were left in situations where they could not take care of themselves, especially after becoming married because you lost your virginal value. Because, like it or not, since, this time, since at this time there is no STD testing, the only way to not get an STD, well, well, to not have sex, and thus it was safer to have sex with a virgin. So women who were virgins had higher value because they were perceived as cleaner, partly because the culture at the time didn't understand what STDs were. This law was put into place to help protect the widow in this situation and let her still have some means of protection. And it was also helped there, once again talking about property, to help family land stay together. Because if the woman were to go marry someone else, the land might leave the family clan and thus weaken the family's influence. Property, land. That's what people, this, this what the intent of this law was kind of spilt around. But the Sadducees, sorry, not liking the intent of this law, which was about protecting the widow, made a strong man, straw man argument about resurrection, and Jesus is not having any of it. He says that the point of resurrection isn't about earthly things or relationships. The resurrected life is not going to be about what we accumulate here on earth. But it'll be about the relationship we have with God. Christ exemplifies this by talking about when Moses met God at the burning bush, that God identified himself as the God of these forefathers of faith, and he used language as to imply that they are still living. That our God is not a God of the dead, but rather a God of the living. This is 
some weird stuff for these Sadducees. And next we have a legal expert. When we talk about the, the things of heavenly things, this is where we get back into it. A legal expert who's been impressed with Jesus' interpretation of law and asked him to sum up what's the more, most important law for them to follow. A lot of scholars believe that this man was around when the rich young ruler was around because the, the um, language around it is so similar. So next up, we have this legal expert and Jesus famously gives back the true intent of the law as well. The, the very first part, he says, is a very is a beginning of a very famous prayer in Judaism. It is called the Shema. Uh, it's Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And now if you've ever attended one of the seders we do with NCKC, you've probably heard me say this prayer done in my worst version of Hebrew. But I'm not going to offer it today in Hebrew. Rather, I'll give it to you in English. Listen, Israel, listen. Our God is the Lord and only Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your being, and all your strength. These words that I am commanding to you today, you must, must always be on your minds. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you are sitting around your house and when you are out and about, when you are lying down and when you are getting up. Tie them on your hand as a sign. They should be on your forehead as a symbol. Write them on your house's door frames and on your city's gates. Jesus is shouting back to a prayer that has been fundamental to the Jewish faith, saying the intent of law has always been given to you. And it follows up by saying one of the most important commandments is also loving your neighbor as yourself which you could kind of see in the Shema in itself, right? What he's talking about when you're sitting around your house, when you're out and about, when you're lying down and you're getting up, when you tie them on your hand as a sign, they should be on your forehead as a symbol. Write them on your house's door frames and on your city's gates. This is about saying, love the Lord your God, and then show that and practice that to everybody you meet, hence your neighbor. And Jesus is hearkening to that the Jewish law was not, once again, about following all these long lists of laws, but rather the intent of law was about loving God and looking out for the other. And this is another capstone on Jesus' ministry that you've heard me talk about over and over again through our time through this human Bible study, that Jesus says that there has always been a deeper intent that we have missed because we have been too busy just making sure we follow the laws and offer the proper sacrifice. The person Jesus is talking to gets it. He says that perhaps following the intent of law is more important than all the sacrifices that we have give on behalf of failing the law. I think that is really important for us to hear, that perhaps the following the intent of law is more important than all the sacrifices that we have given on behalf of failing the law. It seems the law is not about whether we fail to follow it at all, but the law is about fulfilling the intent for our lives. I'm going to say that again because it's an important thing for us to hear. The law is not about whether we fail to follow the law or not. The law was about giving us guidelines to follow. And I think that's a real thing for us to hear in today's culture, especially kind of coming out of modern evangelicalism where we have been told about the weight of sin, which is great. Sin is not something that we should hold on to. But it seems more about hellfire and damnation 
than guidelines of what we are to follow. It seems more about failure than it is about getting better. And Jesus is trying to say in in his interaction with this guy, where this guy gets it. He says, I could offer all the burnt sacrifices in the world, but it doesn't matter if I never change who I am. Not It's not about failing. It's about being who God has called me to be. It's about living out who God has called me to be. And Jesus begins to set this up with an example of what his true intention of this interpretation is. We have experts of law who follow the law perfectly. But following that law has led them to devour the houses of the widows. And though they feel like they are the ones who will sit at the place of power, Well, Jesus said, those who will be first will be last, and those who will be last will be first. I think there's an important thing here, where these law people, these these, the followers of law who devour the houses of the widows, probably think they're doing the right thing by law by devouring the house of the widows, because maybe the widow could not pay her taxes to temple. Well, then we should take her house, because the law declares that we need this, so we should do this. And then they miss the point of the law. Once again, this never happens today, right? It seems that maybe we find ourselves in a place because we have focused so much about following law that we have missed the intent of law. Then we go into the last example. The widow who gives money, and even though the widow gave less, it is much more than a sacrifice to her than the rich person, because the rich gives out of excess, not putting themselves in any financial danger, while the poor widow gave out of what she needed to just live, because she trusted in God and her community to take care of her. And this is once again where Jesus is trying to hold up the standards of this world and putting it on its head. You might think it'd be better just to give out of the money you have of excess instead of a little... Um, in the, You might think it might be better to give a lot of money instead of a little money, but that is not the intent of giving. The amount is not important to God. I want to say that again. The amount of money is not important to God. Render to Caesar what is Caesar. Rather, what is important is that we give sacrificially. We give sacrificially, not just out of our abundance, so that we can be dependent on God, but also so that we realize that things of this world will constantly try to control us if we do not give it away. Render to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God. What does God desire? God desires our heart, our being in all of our strength, and we give that to God, and we give to Caesar the things of this world so that we can press into God and be dependent upon him and realize that it will be through Christ and by God's hand and the Holy Spirit that we are taking care of, not just for this life, but for the life to come. We need to trust in that, especially in the times that we find ourselves in now, where it feels like there is scarcity, And that scarcity can lead us to hoarding and only giving out of our abundance. We must remember the perfect love of God, a love that will cast out all fear. We must remember to rely on God. And what I want to talk about now, I'm going off script a little bit. 
because it's towards the end and you know if you've made it this far you're you're in for the long haul when it when we think of the things of this world i do think of the systems that have begun to oppress people and how we say we are just following law in order to see these systems continue and i say this is not the intent of how god wanted us to be in this world and sometimes sometimes it calls for us to fight against these systems to reveal the true intent because I do believe there are demonic forces that have, that have changed the way we interpret law to take it away from God, to blind us to the vulnerable, to the marginalized. And I ask us as a church to pray and to seek the intent of who God is. We can render to Caesar what is Caesar because we belong to God. And by doing what God has called us to do, we will find a deeper understanding of the kingdom that we belong to. I encourage you this week to be safe, to pray for peace, to pray for strength, but also be guided this week by the intent of God's will for your life and the life of his church. Amen. And also, please, wash your hands. <laughs>